Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Friday, May 29th here in Brooklyn, New York. Hope everyone is staying safe and healthy during these uh, trying days of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Coming up today on the podcast is what I hope will be an interesting interview that I really enjoy doing with the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater head coach, Carrie Carollo. Uh, University of Wisconsin-Whitewater is a Division III powerhouse in a lot of sports. Primarily what most people might know them from is from their football team as they are uh, one of the best in the whole country and play in the Division III playoffs that sometimes get put on ESPN when they make it, as they did this past year, to the national championship, and they've won numerous national championships of football. But they're also basketball powerhouses, not just on the men's side, but on the women's side. Uh, Coach Carollo has has led the, the, the UW-Whitewater Warhawks to three Final Fours and a double-digit NCAA tournament appearances and just really great things that they're doing out there. And so wanted to talk to her and it was a great uh, conversation and that'll be coming up uh, in a couple minutes here. But before, as usual, what we do here on the Double Double is recommendation corner to start during uh, this time. So number one recommendation corner from this week is, you know, there's a lot going on in the world. There's no sports on TV. I know I keep recommending this, but Top Chef is really, you know, pun intended, heating up. Uh, this year, it's been one of the great seasons. Uh, just fun. I highly recommend uh, having dinner with watching the show or having a snack while because uh, the food that they cook on that show is just incredible. Uh, so I highly recommend uh, Top Chef. And then also, uh, I really like in the book I'm reading, it's Monuments Men by Robert Etzel. It was made into a movie few years back with George Clooney and Matt Damon and, and John Goodman, but tells a story of this select group of uh, professionals during World War II, American and British, uh, people who went into the war, into Europe, and tried to recover and maintain all the art and culture that the Nazis were looting and destroying during the war. And it's a really interesting uh, story that uh, I'm really enjoying reading. And so if anyone's looking for uh, a book to read, I, I highly recommend that one. So coming up after I hit the music is my interview from earlier today with the head women's basketball coach at UW-Whitewater, Carrie Carollo. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, Carrie Carollo. A native of Northern California, she played her college ball at Humboldt State, a Division II school in Arcata, California, where in her senior year, she had the third highest three-point shooting percentage in the nation. After graduation, she immediately embarked on her coaching career, coaching the freshman girls high school team at Arcata High School, and then Coach Carrillo jumped up to the college game the following year and spent two years as a graduate assistant at University of Wisconsin-La Crosse before moving on to another University of Wisconsin school, Stout, in 1999. As the associate head coach in 2001-2002 season, UW Stout won the WIAC Conference Championship, and in the summer of 2002, she was named the head women's basketball coach at UW-Whitewater. In her 18 years at the helm, she has guided the Warhawks to 12 NCAA tournaments, including the 2008, 2013, and 2014 Final Fours, and has been named the WIAC Coach of the Year four times, including this past 2019-2020 season. I'm thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? 
It's going good. He's as good as I can. And um, thank you for that introduction. It's uh, been an incredible journey for me as a coach. And um, and it's it's kind of fun to hear someone else talk about it because when you're <laughs> living it, you don't really realize you've done all those things. So thank you. That was that was very nice. <laughs> of course. So so let's go back to to the beginning to start. Can you kind of talk about what growing up in Northern California was like and how you got involved with uh, the game of basketball? Yeah, sure. So Northern California is a very rural area, very mountainous, um, beautiful. We lived right in the redwood trees, um, and it was uh, it was a very very happy childhood and a very small community. So um, the town that I lived in was only about 300 people, oh, wow. and um, yeah, the high school had about 350 students in it. So um, my high school class, graduating class, only had 68 kids in the class. So um, very small town and um, just a really great childhood. Had awesome parents that um, both were educators, and then I grew up with two sisters who were both athletes as well. Um, my dad actually was the coach in the family. He coached football and baseball. And so that's really what kind of sparked my interest um, in coaching and in sports. And um, and so then I had, I was fortunate enough to go on to play at Humboldt State, which is um, a university system state school in California. Uh, it was only about an hour and a half north of, of where I grew up. And that was kind of important to me that I wanted my family to be able to watch me play and um, had a really fun, great career there. But um, one day I was coaching um, some little kids in a clinic when I was a player and my coaches came up to me afterwards and they were like, have you ever thought about coaching? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, why? And they're like, you're really good at it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so um, they introduced me to the high school coach in town because uh, I had a fifth year of school to finish up. And um, we ended up, he ended up hiring me, like you said, as the freshman coach. And I just fell in love with the sport and fell in love with coaching. And But I knew high school just wasn't, the direction I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I was just a little too serious and a little too competitive um, to coach high school. So <laughs> I knew college was probably a better fit for me. So um, somehow I went online and started researching graduate schools and found lacrosse and ended up there. So it's That's it was awesome. pretty incredible because people are always like, why would you move from sunny warm beautiful california to <laughs> cold wisconsin <laughs> for sure and you know i wanted to try something new and get out of my shell a little bit and um ended up in in wisconsin that's great so back during your time in college it was still relatively early or not too it wasn't too early but still in, in the early days of title nine and equalizing sports opportunity for women just what was it like being a college athlete uh, during the earlier mid 1990s, it it was great. I mean, I had two coaches that um, really were pioneers in their sports. Both of them had played at the University of California Davis, and they really talked to us a lot about the value of sport and the value of having the opportunity to play. Um, because when they were, you know, moving up the ranks through high school and college that they didn't always have the same opportunities that we had. So, um, we were still in the midst of trying to have the same facilities, uh, you know, equitable facilities as our, as our counterpart. And we were still kind of going through that at Humboldt at the time when I was there, 
Um, so it was really interesting for me as a young athlete to really see kind of the pains that my coaches went through mm-hmm. and then the things that we were still battling to be able to kind of have the same um, standards as far as budgets and equipment and thing, things like that. But by the end of my career, we, we really were um, kind of on our way, to be quite honest. And um, our coaches did a really great job of never letting us feel like we were less than and really made sure that we were had everything that we needed and then just challenged us to really continue to fight the fight and mm-hmm. push forward and continue to create opportunities more opportunities for for women yes that that all sounds awesome and and you know they they encourage you as as you said to to pursue coaching and and after graduating from Humboldt State, you mentioned you became the head coach of the freshman girls team at the Arcata High School. Just, I remember what I was like as a freshman in high school. It's, it's they're a difficult age group. Uh, what were just some of the challenges of coaching young women at that just level of basketball, and also just at that age level, and just be of being just a first year head coach? Well, I think um, at that level, it's well coaching in general, especially at that level, it's so much more of nurturing and mentoring and guiding and and really challenging them to get outside of their, what they're comfortable with. And, you know, when you're a young girl and you're trying, it's your first year of high school, you're really just trying to figure all of that out. So, um, and I was super young coach, so I really just tried to do my best to be a good role model for them and a good mentor for them and then challenge them to really see that they can excel in something um, beyond just, you know, the classroom or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to take advantage of those opportunities. But the high school part, also, you have to work with parents. You know, that's the other thing that was really challenging because you have some parents that are really invested and involved and really want to help their kids succeed. And then you have the others that are, you know, maybe working 12 hour days and they can't get their kids to practice every day, you know, so you have to learn how to balance out that kind of dynamic as well, because in high school, those kids are really at the mercy of their parents to be able to do extracurricular activities. So, um, so that was, you know, another challenge, but really good, uh, you know, eye-opening experience for me as a young coach. So you end up transitioning to the college game, as you mentioned, the following year, joining the staff as a graduate assistant coach at UW Lacrosse. Just w- from what, from just from a coaching perspective, what was that jump up in levels like from freshman high school girls basketball to uh, collegiate basketball? Yeah, it was so exciting. I mean, I was so excited to be able to coach uh, women that were just as passionate about the sport as I was and willing to put in the extra work and the extra time. So I was so excited um, to get that opportunity. And at lacrosse, at the time, the grad assistant was the only assistant coach. So it was me. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, I got to get to work. So probably the biggest thing was just that all the time, the energy, how much you have to really work um, to recruit and do all those other things that you don't have to do in high school. So, um, you know, traveling a lot on the road, and then I was trying to figure out how to drive in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy cow. 
Um, but it was a really great experience because I was kind of just thrown into it, you know, like, here we go. Like, here's what we do. This is, you know, you're going to have to work eight to 10 hour days. You're going to work seven days a week. And so it was a really good learning experience from that standpoint, for sure. So after two years at lacrosse, where you also received your master's degree in exercise and sports science slash sports administration, you move on to UW Stout in 1999. And in 2001, you become the associate head coach. I've kind of always just been curious about this as similarly to players on the team, it always seems like uh, each coach on the staff has a different role and responsibilities. As the associate head coach, kind of what type of responsibilities does does that bring or, or fall under your purview? Yeah, so as an associate head coach, it just really allowed me to kind of from a title standpoint, really put myself in a position if I were to move on to really show that I have the, I've had the opportunity to um, take on more responsibility with game time decisions or um, be able to coach, you know, in practice and, you know, really implement a lot of things that are ideas that I had. So our head coach at the time, uh, Mark Thomas, he Uh, again another great mentor in my life and he really taught me what it takes to be um, a great coach in our conference you know he's coached um, you know for a number of years at Stout and um, just recently retired but you know just a phenomenal mentor for me to to really learn from and understand how hard you have to work and if you really want something you have to go get it you Mm -hmm. can't just wait for it to come to you so um, so that you know, he really allowed me to kind of take the reins sometimes, which I really appreciated because it definitely helped me as I as I moved on. Um, but really, that's what it is. I mean, I coached the guards. I did all the defense um, other than our press. You know, that was kind of yeah. his baby was the press and, <laughs> um, and the fast break. So um, but other than that, I did all the half court man concepts and, you know, all of that. So. Um, I was really lucky. I, I was, you know, really fortunate to be able to have that opportunity. So in the summer of 2002, you become the head women's basketball coach at UW-Whitewater. And just one thing about Division Three sports, as any listeners who don't know, that unlike Division One or Division Two, there are no on-court practices or workouts that are required or, or where coaches are allowed to be there in, in Division Three during the off-seasons. And... Mm-hmm. Just how did you go about establishing relationships and laying the foundations of your program uh, without that type of on-court contact in the first er- in, in the early months of when you got the job? Yeah, it's very, very difficult, you know, especially when you're walking into a situation where most of these girls I, you know, coached against. So yeah. I know them. <laughs> and they're like, well, who's this coach coming from, you know, UW Stout? And of course, you know, they didn't like Stout very much because we, we usually beat Whitewater when <laughs> I was there. So, so I think that it was, um, it was something that we kind of had to slowly you know, work into. And like you said, it's really difficult in the off season because you can only really have one meeting, you know, to get everyone together and, and introduce yourself and talk about, you know, what your plans are for the program. But, um, really for me, it was about changing a culture. I mean, the program was in a pretty rough, rough place and, um, had had a couple coaches transitions before I was there. So, 
Um, we were really focused on changing the culture and really teaching the, the program how what it takes to be successful and that you're going to have to go above and beyond if you want to be special and, you know, just those kinds of things. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, it's hard. You know, it's really hard, especially as a young coach when you are, you're really trying to establish yourself. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't have a win-loss record yet, so no, you know, I don't really have anything to say, well, I've done this, you know, so yeah. um, just really trying to allow the girls to get to know me as a person and really just try to buy in and trust me as a person more than their coach before I just dove into really getting after them and, and setting the setting the tone. I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, culture, Coach, because I personally think that that term, that word culture is way overused today as it's kind of just like this buzzword for every and everything. It's like we're talking about good culture, bad culture. It's why they succeed, why they fail, when a lot of times there's a lot of other factors that isn't just culture. But I just feel like everyone says it all the time. And mm-hmm. and you kind of mentioned, you know, trying to get the women in your program to go above and beyond and to kind of really just buy into that culture and the program you're trying to build. One thing I'm always curious for is people love love to say that, but as a coach, what are you really looking for in terms of the signs uh, from the players that they are buying into the culture that you're trying to build? Yeah, it really comes from what, to me, it comes from what they do in the off season. So mm-hmm. if you see a group of women that have bought into what we're trying to do when, when we are together, cause that's easy, right? Like I'm, I have to go to practice and coach is going to tell me what to do. Um, you know, that's, that's the easy part to me. It's buying in when you're not with your teammates every day. And when you're not with coach there in the gym with you every day, you know, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you working out? Are you preparing yourself? And, you know, are you being a good leader? Are you communicating with your teammates outside of the season? You know, those that's when I can see, like, especially when I have my best junior and senior classes, mm-hmm. those are the classes that end up having the most success. Because I always tell them, what you do in the off season is probably not going to show up until postseason. Yeah. So if you really have a great off season, then you're going to have a very successful postseason. But if you choose not to, then your season generally is going to is going to end quite sooner than you probably want it to. Mm-hmm. So that to me is when I really see wow, this group is really going to be special. Yeah. Um, was when you can see that they're just busting their tail outside of the time that they're being watched by either myself or our coaching staff or their teammates. And after five seasons of building and improving each year, the team breaks through in the 2007-2008 season, winning the WIAC, making it all the way to the Final Four and finishing 29-4. and four. As, as you mentioned, just, just the things you were looking for of the off-season workouts, was that kind of when you knew that that, that group could do something special? Yes. I mean, that we had women in that, on that team that um, they loved each other and they loved – the program they wanted to be they wanted to be special and they were unselfish and you know I think you know you can use all those those buzzwords but they really came into that season with just a different focus a different mentality um and when you've been coaching for a long time you can see it like you can see the teams Mm -hmm. that are really special and um have really have are really kind of on a mission each year you can see that they're just wanting to do something that no one else has done and that group definitely did and 
um, we just had just a really special dynamic that year that led us, you know, into a, a fantastic season. And in the Elite Eight, you match up with DePaul and you defeat them 83 to 80. And all of a sudden, in UW Whitewater's first NCAA tournament appearance in 13 years, you guys were headed to the to the Final Four. What was that moment like for you and the team in the locker room and just that whole week of prep knowing that you were getting ready to go play in the Final Four? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I think um, it's, it's really interesting. Our very first game in the tournament that year, we played Manchester um, out of Indiana. And, you know, I guess I was a little overconfident. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to just roll over that team, you know, because I felt like we were, we had, you know, we were far superior just from size and whatnot. And, um, and we struggled and we, we barely beat, we ended up winning, but we barely beat that team. And that game to me was so important because I realized like, it doesn't matter. You look on paper, you doesn't matter statistically what you've done all year or what the team's done. Um, or what the records are, it's tournament time. Like, yeah. everybody's coming to play. And so, for me, that was such a, a pivotal point in that season because I realized, like, all the cards have to be on the table, and it doesn't matter who you're playing. You have to be ready to go. And I think for our team, they woke up, and they were like, holy crap, like, we got to come ready to go. We can't yeah. just walk in here and expect to win. And so that was amazing. And then the DePaul game was one of my favorite games I've ever coached. It was just unbelievable. The the big shot after big shot, it was unreal. They had this guard. I should probably remember her name. She just <laughs> killed us. But she could not miss. And it was, I mean, you know, Coach is, Chris is just an amazing coach at DePaul. And so we've had some really great games against each other. And mm-hmm. Um, but she always just has these amazing guards and, um, she just was unreal that night. She couldn't miss from three. And, um, and so I didn't know if it was going to come down to the last possession, you know, either team was equally capable of moving on and, um, and at tournament time, that's generally what happens. And thankfully luck was a little bit on our side, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and we, and we had a chance to go to the final four. So I think, For our team, we were a little, I guess you could say, kind of overwhelmed Um, once we had that chance. It was our first time going, and I think everyone was just, like, so excited and amazed by what a great job the NCAA does to, to, you know, provide all these special experiences for the student-athletes. So um, I'd like to say that, you know, we probably weren't as prepared as we should have been mentally or locked in from the basketball standpoint but um i won't take that away from that team they had such a great year and and just had just a wonderful run and an amazing final four experience so coming off that run to the final four i know it didn't go exactly the way you guys had all wanted or dreamed it to go but how does the the preparation change in that offseason and fall dealing with the the higher expectations or increased hype of hey this this team's coming off a a run to the final four yeah, and we basically, we, I mean, we lost three seniors, two of them which were significant players for us and one that was a role player. But, um, you know, so we came into that season in 2008-9 ranked number one in the country. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that our team was ready for that. I think <laughs> they were like, what? <laughs> 
why are we ranked number one, coach? I'm like, I don't know. Rankings don't mean anything. Just uh, ignore it. You know, we're yeah. trying to, you know, focus on just winning the first game. And, um, you know, I think it was a bit overwhelming for them. I think they weren't really prepared for all of the, I guess you could say, quote unquote, hype, you know, for Division Three women's basketball. But mm-hmm. we went and played in our first tournament. And we won both games, but the second game was not pretty, and we ended up kind of squeaking to get by. And there's this little pod of fans, and they started chanting overrated. And I think our girl, yeah. (laughs) And I was like, oh, God, this is awful. (laughs) (laughs) And afterwards, I I talked to our team. I was like, how did you guys feel about that? And then they, and they were like, well, that's that's that pisses me off coach and I'm like okay well let's do something about it let's Uh not just be okay you know with playing satisfactory to beat teams let's really prepare for what we want to do so um it wasn't a season that we were like it ended obviously earlier than we had planned but um you know again just a really great group of girls and um, you know, we had, had hoped for doing more, but sometimes it just doesn't go that way. You know, I think that yeah. the national tournament is crazy. Like sometimes you do have to have a little bit of luck and things have to go your way. And, um, and that's just kind of how the ball bounces sometimes. Yeah. In, in, in the next four years, the team made it to the NCAA tournament each year, but never advanced past the second round. And I'm a firm believer, Coach, that aside from talent and hard work, that luck just plays a huge, huge part of NCAA yeah. tournament success. As, as we see Division One men's coaching legends like John Calipari and Bill Self only have one national championship each, that doesn't mean that they haven't coached tremendous teams or players right. that had the potential to, to go on and, and win those those championships. What do you right. think goes into the that NCAA tournament success as you both have like the final four experience as well as uh, earlier round losses. Yeah. So for my experiences, what I think is the biggest difference is that you have to have one player in your program. And it's not that it doesn't have to be the same player every night, but you have to have one player in each of those games that just has their moment. Mm-hmm. And, to me, when we when we have won all of the, the had the tournament runs, that was the difference. Is that you know I can even go back almost in every single game and tell you which one of our players just had a special night and took us to the next round. Um, but I really think that that's that's what it takes. I mean, you watch some of the national tournament, you know, even Division One, like what those those players they always have one player yep. that really just steps up and kind of takes over and. And, and does the job. And I really think that that is the biggest difference in, um, you know, in our, in our runs. And when you don't have those nights and you run into a player on the opposing team that has that night, you're done. Yeah. Like that's it. You know, that's what happened to us this last year. I mean, we played Redlands in the first round and their senior guard had the game of her life. Uh-huh. And I was like, all right, well that's <laughs> the end of our season. <laughs> You know, but that's what it takes. You know, she had just a phenomenal night. And, you know, you can't take anything away from her. She just had an amazing game. And we didn't get it done on the defensive end. And that'll that'll end your season real fast. For sure. And I want to switch over to a little more of a somber tone. As in in 2012, as the tournament was coming off, five straight NCAA tournament appearances. It was off to a 2 and one start when, uh, when tragedy struck your program. Uh, sophomore Alex Scarborough 
uh, committed suicide and, and what was, I'm sure, an, an unthinkable, tragic experience, not just for you as a coach, but for the coaching staff and really all the young women in your program. Just what was that moment like when you found out about Alex and just how did you go about telling uh, the women on the team? Yeah, um, it was pretty uh, just unreal. I, I can't even describe it. It's just one of those things that you just never think will happen. Um, and really, really unfortunate, you know, situation with um, her family and, you know, her her sister actually um, also committed suicide, I want to say like two or three years earlier than Alex did. So um, just a lot of turmoil for that family and um, and her dad. I didn't really know her mom that well, so but her dad and I were pretty close and um, just getting that phone call from him. Uh, was just really, really horrible day. It was mm-hmm. just not a good day. And um, so I immediately, of course, you know, brought the girls together and we were in our locker room and um, broke the news to them. And we all just cried. I mean, we just sat there and cried and cried and cried. And, um, you know, and then I said, all right, we, we've got to figure out a way to turn this really negative situation into something positive. You know, Mm -hmm. what would Alex want us to do? And I know that sounds kind of cliche, but um, it was really, in a weird way, kind of empowering for them to really dedicate their season to her and to her family and to really just um, try to find a way to go, uh, you know, beyond what they would normally do. Because we had been through a lot with Alex. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just the suicide. I mean, there was a lot that had gone on with her and just her life that we as a team had kind of gone through with her. So, um, so it was really tough, you know, it was probably one of the toughest moments in my coaching career where, um, you know, you kind of have to let your guard down and and just be human Mm -hmm. and let your players see that you're human and, um, and really just collectively try to figure out how to pick up the pieces and, and keep moving forward. So in the Elite Eight following that year, you guys are dedicating the season to Alex. You guys knock off hope uh, in this season marred with tragedy, and, and all of a sudden you guys are back in the Final Four. Was that Crazy. trip any <laughs> different uh, than your one prior, just in terms of preparation as, as you kind of as, as knew what more to expect? Yeah, absolutely. Like we, like, just like you said, we knew what to expect. We were definitely much more focused. We, you know, were prepared for all of the kind of distractions, you know, that come along with the final four and, um, really just making sure that we didn't allow those distractions to get in our way and, and really focus more on game prep and and getting ready for the games. But, um, going back to that hope game that, that was, unreal so i don't know if you know this but we played hope earlier in the year at their Mm -hmm. place in like a holiday tournament yeah and they absolutely destroyed us (laughs) (laughs) so we were like oh great we get to play them again (laughs) so my husband and i and my assistant um amy zollinger we sat down before we were playing in the second time and i was like all right we're just gonna get these girls to believe that they can beat them and we're gonna give them a couple game adjustments and we're going to tell them that this is going to work, and we're just going to hope that it works. <laughs> <laughs> and it was incredible. I mean, for whatever reason, we just played. Like I said, we had the game of our lives, and Hope, I think, was just shocked. I think they thought they were going to kill us because they did earlier in the year. And, mm-hmm. 
yeah, just an incredible game. And we hung on to win. Yes. We got up by a lot, and then we had to hang on to win. But, um, yeah, that that was a game that I'll never forget. And Hope's, or um, Alex's high school teammate played for Hope. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so it was a really kind of crazy night. (laughs) (laughs) And it was almost the opposite in the next game in the Final Four, you guys match up against the NESCAC Power Amherst College. And mm-hmm. in what was a game for the ages, you guys overcome a 12-point deficit with about three minutes to go. And you guys made your first three three-pointers of the whole game and cut the lead down to three uh, with six seconds left after a Courtney Kumaro three-pointer. You guys foul Amherst. They missed the front end of the one-on-one free throw. And all of a sudden, you guys have the rebound, and you're coming down the court with a chance to win the game. As a coach, how do you prepare your team for that type of situation? And just what do you remember as Mary Merck's three-pointer was in the air heading towards the basket? Yeah. Um, like you said, it was – you can't as a coach you can't prepare for something like that I mean those are moments where they they just happen I mean the they just completely did that on their own you know it was um the biggest thing was you know we couldn't make a perimeter shot that was what was just for whatever reason that night we just couldn't hit a shot and then Mm -hmm. when we finally hit that three like you said with about three minutes to go I was like oh maybe there's a chance because we finally made a basket (laughs) Um, but Amherst, I give them a ton of credit. I mean, they play such great defense. Yeah. Like, it's really hard to get a good look. And so, um, you know, they GP does such a great job just defensively, as you can see over the years. Yeah. You know, they just are phenomenal. But um, so once we hit that perimeter shot, I was like, oh, man, we can make a run here real quick. And... You know, you try to put the team in the situations by fouling and giving ourselves a little extra time. And, um, you know, you just hope that the ball gets to the right person. And we were trying to call a play, actually, when they were shooting the free throw because we have a couple um, last-second full-court plays that yeah. we practice every day. And they they kind of did it. <laughs> <laughs> But they didn't execute it to perfection. I can just remember after the game and Courtney Kumaro was like, Coach, I tried to get there, but, like, Mary got the ball so fast, and then it just was – and I'm like, hey, whatever you did, it worked. Yeah, exactly. We're good. <laughs> um, but, you know, just the, the excitement, the elation of just watching the ball go in the rim. I mean, I've watched that clip, you know, a million times. Yeah. And every time I get the chills because it's just, like, incredible. And as a coach, you always hope that you have a chance to be in that moment. Um, and so to say that I've had that moment is just – I'm just super lucky because um, it doesn't happen very often. And it's hard to believe, but the game got even more exciting in overtime as Amherst, in a back-and-forth overtime, Amherst ties the game on a jumper with about six seconds to go, ironically, yeah. again, six seconds, and you get the ball and you come down and the ball's in Mary Merck's hands again, and she hits a floater to send you to the national championship in another crazy sports center uh, type highlight play. Just what do you yeah. remember about that whole overtime experience and just her shot to to win the game yeah so you know all I kept thinking was we just had to get one more stop you know with the time winding down and um you know they had this one really great guard that just hit that mid-range shot right I think right around the top of the key and 
Um, so I was like, all right, here we go. And, <laughs> and again, you know, those are the moments where as a coach, you know, you can easily call timeout. I can't remember if I had any timeouts left or not, but you can easily call timeout and set something up. But I always feel like in those moments, you know, that if you do that, this is such a, you know, philosophical decision, but, um, if you do that, then you're going to allow the defense to get organized. And I always feel like it allows the players even to start kind of overthinking Mm -hmm. instead of just taking in the moment and playing through the moment. And so I, I always at the end of games for the most part, especially with that much time left, just kind of let them go, you know, and put it in their hands and, um, see what happens. And thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, again, it worked out in our favor. But um, yeah, Mary Merg's two shots uh, to get us to the national championship game will forever be a part of, you know, Warhawk history is yep. probably to, well, Cordell Young, our men's, yep. our men's team, he hit a couple big shots too <laughs> to win some games. But um, for the women's program, they're definitely going to be remembered forever. Yeah, and, and I think coaches are just in an impossible lose-lose situation with, with stuff like that because when it works out like it did and you guys win the game, you're mm-hmm. praised for not calling a timeout. That was a great decision. But then if you miss, then it's like, well, why did you call a timeout? Why? It's, it's yeah. all about the as long as the outcome goes the way, then then you get the credit yeah. or, or uh, the criticism. But yeah, I, I think it's an sure. impossible situation. But just for the listeners who don't know, it's kind of the way the Division Three Final Four is set up is that it's different than the Division One Final Four in that in the men's tournament uh, or men's and women's Division One, the games are played on Saturday and then the championship game is on Monday. And for the women's, it's on Sunday, the Final Four, and then the championship is on Tuesday. In D3, though, the Final Four and National Championship games are played on back-to-back days. Just how did you go about preparing for DePaul, your team, the the other team in the national championship, with less than a day to kind of prepare and get ready, and also just with so much on the line. Right. And, you know, in retrospect, we, we probably should have done a little bit better job of making sure that our girls were settled in and moving on. And, you know, we talked about all of that, like, okay, this game is over. We still have another game to play, you know. But after going through such a huge high and low in yeah. one game and then getting to bed so late and all of that, I knew it was going to be really difficult to bounce back. Um, to play a high level of basketball, especially against, you know, a great DePaul team, um, probably one of Chris's, if not one her best team that she's ever had since she's been there. So, um, you know, it was going to be a big challenge for us, a big hill to climb. So um, we did our best. And, you know, I think the other piece of the puzzle that really kind of threw us for a loop is that, you know, Mary's shots were number one on sports center yep. <laughs> so in the middle of the night you know my husband's waking me up and he's like we're on sports center <laughs> i'm like no go to bed we have a game tomorrow <laughs> yeah you know so all of that excitement i think really um which was awesome like i'll never i'd never want to take anything away from that but um was really a difficult thing to kind of turn around in such a short period of time and you know try to play 
the best team in the country, you yeah. know, and try to win a national championship. So um, not the best case scenario for Division Three to play on a Friday, Saturday or Saturday, Sunday. It's mm-hmm. really, really hard. I've always tried to be an advocate for at least in the final four, giving those teams a day yeah. rest. Um, but you know, it always comes down to money and yep. in division three, we don't have a lot. So we do the best with what we have. Yeah. I've, I've, I've empathized with the, with the Amherst side of that as, as my sophomore year, we lost a game on a hail Mary buzzer beater. And when I woke up the next morning and I checked my phone, someone had sent me the video on Instagram and it was the number one play mm-hmm. on sports and it had 800,000 views by yeah. 8 a.m. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is absurd. Uh, yeah. But so unfortunately that, that game against uh, DePaul did not go your way. And you come back the next year with a vengeance, getting ready to climb the mountain again. And in what was just a tremendous season? You guys go 27 and five, run the table in the WIAC regular season at 16 and 0. And personally, you know, just naturally, I have a little bit of a bias towards uh, the NESCAC as a former NESCAC athlete, as just thinking that the NESCAC is the best league in all D3. But there's more than a very fair case to make that the WIAC is the best league, men's and women's sports in all of D3. Just for the listeners who may not know a lot about the WIAC, can you just talk about how good that league is and how hard it is to go 16 and out? Yeah, it's very, very difficult. Um, we we play Wednesday, Saturday nights, and so most of our games for our student-athletes are pretty long distance away. Our closest road game is two hours away. So we're talking about a lot of travel, a lot of travel during the winter. Um, it's, a, it's a grind. I mean, you have to be able to have a really special group. I think there's only maybe one other team on the women's side that's gone undefeated in conference just because it is it's just so tough um competitively and then just how long the season is as i'm sure you know it's yeah. it's tough so um but just great basketball that team like you said was just so focused on wanting to be great and rebound after you know having that tough loss in the national tournament um you know so to be able to turn around and go 16 and 0 sometimes i look back and i'm like wow how did we do that but <laughs> we just had a really really amazing group of seniors we had um four four starters that were all seniors they all played in the national tournament and national championship game and they were on a vengeance they yeah. wanted to do something special and then we were fortunate we got um, in addition, at the one of our former um, volleyball players, she also played basketball, but she decided to play basketball um, the second half of this of the school year, and so she came in at Christmas, and she's like six two, <laughs> just complete stud athlete. I was like, yeah, you can come play basketball. <laughs> it was like a trade deadline reinforcement. Yeah. In, in the NBA. And so with the addition of her, we were. We were sitting pretty good. <laughs> and so in in the Sweet 16, you guys face off and defeat conference rival UW Oshkosh. And in the next mm-hmm. game, revenge was on the menu, Coach, as you guys match up with DePaul in a rematch of the prior national championship. I'm sure you didn't need to do a lot to motivate the women on, on the team. in such a potentially emotional game. But just as a coach, how do you control your own emotions and try to con- control the emotions of the team so they don't come out, you know, two guns a blazing and, and kind of run out of, right. uh, run out of energy. 
Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think um, I was probably more nervous about the Oshkosh game because that was the fourth time that we had played them that year. And I knew that it was going to be a really ugly game just because because of that. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to make sure that our seniors, that special group, didn't finish their career losing to Oshkosh. (laughs) (laughs) I was really, really nervous about that. So um, to be able to kind of squeak out that win and figure out how to get it done was so important to me. So the next game for me, I felt like because the first game was going to be so tough and just a grinder that I felt like maybe hopefully on in the Saturday game against the paw, we would kind of just bust out and play just really great and a little more you know, relaxed, I guess you could say. Um, because playing against Oshkosh was just, was so tough. Yeah. So I think the other thing that kind of motivated us was that we, Carthage, um, it was Carthage and DePaul in the first game, and DePaul just destroyed them. I mean, they just whacked them. (laughs) And so we were walking out, and we heard DePaul in their locker room just cheering with excitement. And I'm like, they think they're going to kill us. Yeah. Because we just played horrible against (laughs) Oshkosh. And so the next morning, we had our shoot around, and I sat the girls down, and I was like, listen. I'm like, we are going to be our own um, fans. We're our own. We're the only ones in this gym that want us to win this yeah. game. And I said, and those girls are in that locker room last night cheering because they watched you guys play on Friday and they think you were terrible. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, you know, DePauw, again, just phenomenal team. And we had one of our guards had the game of her life. Yeah. And that was the name of the game for us. And so in, in the final four, you guys match up with Whitman college, a a West coast power and you end up falling to them. But one thing that I don't know how often this has ever happened for in in any division, in any level of college basketball, but that year, even though in division three and men's and women's final fours are not held in the same location, both the men's and women's whitewater teams had made the final four that year. Can you just kind of talk about what that week was like on campus with both programs getting ready to go compete in the Final Four? Yeah, just so much fun. I mean, Coach Miller and I have been longtime friends from, you know, the moment that I stepped foot on campus. Like, I look at him as kind of like my brother, you know, we have mm-hmm. really close. So um, to be able to do that with your counterpart is just so special. And we've had years where we both have won conference and, together and you know so it's just it's so fun for us as coaches but it's probably more fun for the athletes they you know because they get an opportunity to really get to know each other and support each other and so to see that level of success um on you know on our men's program as well is is so fun the only hard part is that we don't get to go watch yeah. them play but yep. um you know it was just a really special year i know our administration was torn they were like okay who's gonna go where <laughs> how do we do this i said well hey this is a really good problem to have so yeah. we're good but um just a really exciting time on our campus our um, our administration, our chancellor, like everyone was just super excited for all of us and, you know, wanting to, to be a part of, of history, really, for our university and our athletic department. So yep. 
Um, lots of great memories. Lots of great memories. Yep. So I want to jump ahead a few years now as, as, as we get to the end here, Coach, and kind of talk about this, this past season. You guys went 23-4, and four, won the WIAC again, and you guys earned uh, the right to host a pod in the NCAA tournament for the first round. At the same time, kind of the world had other plans as we were first seeing uh, the signs of the potential damage that the coronavirus could do here in the States. We saw Johns Hopkins and, and Amherst close their gyms to fans that, that weekend. Was there any mm-hmm. talk amongst your team about just the coronavirus and kind of just the administration about playing your pod that weekend without any fans? No. In fact, we had no inkling at all. That wasn't even something that we had discussed or thought about or talked about or anything. So, which looking back is quite interesting as to where we are today, you know, is, is quite different. But, um, as a university, I, I don't think that there was any threat at that point, at least we thought. Um, so there wasn't any conversation at all that that could happen. And I think with the the hard part or the kind of strange part for everyone, at least at our institution, was it was kind of unreal, right? Is yeah. this really happening? Like, are people really closing their hands? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, so it was kind of hard for everyone to wrap their head around that and then to be able to say, well, are we are we still having this? You know, and I think, um, you know, I guess, un- unfortunately, we lost, so we we didn't have to worry about it moving forward. But mm-hmm. then we started hearing about, you know, Amherst and other schools um, closing to fans. And we were like, wow, this has to be real serious if yeah. this is, if this is the case. So, so yeah, you know, and I think still for our student athletes, they're trying to kind of grasp and comprehend like how all of this is going to look moving forward mm-hmm. too. So, um, you know, it's kind of that wait and see type of mentality. But at the time, we we didn't didn't realize how serious it was. Yeah, for sure. I was I was kind of in the same boat as once Hopkins did it. Hopkins being so renowned for their public health uh, departments and just being world leaders mm-hmm. in science and, and public health. But when they did, it, I was like, wait a second, what did they know yeah. that that kind of the rest of us haven't figured out yet? But yes, exactly. but but as you mentioned, with with almost every athlete now at home preparing for. Uh, what what could be a very different uh, school year or season, just each athlete has different resources at their disposal to help them train and, and work out at, at home. What things would you recommend to a player to work on if, if they only had like 15 to 30 minutes each day to kind of uh, get ready for the upcoming basketball season? Yeah, and like you said, it all comes down to what resources they have. So what's interesting to me is that, you know, we have players from Minnesota and we have players from Wisconsin and Illinois, and it's different for everybody. Yeah. You know, our Illinois student-athletes are way more restricted than, you know, say the Wisconsin or even the Minnesota student-athletes. So um, a couple of my players that are in Illinois, I mean, her, one of them, her mom, for the first two months wouldn't let her leave the house. Yeah. You know, so you've got that dynamic as opposed to, you know, the other family, you know, just down the road in Wisconsin where they're like, yeah, go do whatever, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so um, so it's navigating that it's understanding the challenges that each of them are having and then really trying to formulate a way for them to feel like they are being productive 
and that they are able to continue to work on their game. So mm-hmm. what we talk, what we provided them and talk a lot about is if you can't get to a weight room, if you can't get outside to run, then you're going to have to be creative, right? You're going to yeah. have to have some body weight workouts. You're going to have to figure out how to do some cardio in your house. You know, even though you, you can't run or ride a bike or swim or do something like that, find other ways to get your heart rate up and maintain that level of your heart rate for an extended period of time. Yeah. So it's just really learning how to be creative. You know, some of them have built their own little gym with just some of the pieces that they have at their house, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, some of them have hoops, some of them don't. So if they don't, then they're working more on ball skills and really honing in on, you know, just having the ball in your hands every day. That's something that we talk about is don't detach yourself from the game of basketball, even though it's so easy right now, mm-hmm. touch the basketball. Like you have to have it in your hands at least 20 minutes a day. And they're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, coach. You know, so Um, because it's not on TV, you know, how are you going to get, you know, I mean, there are some, you know, hardwood classics on that I've been watching, but you know, there's not much that you can really do. You just have to use the resources you have to the best of your ability. And then probably most importantly is keep your mental health. You Mm. know, I think right now it's figuring out how to just stay sane and understand that this is all going to eventually get better. But, um, you know, make sure to finish up school strong. A lot of our girls just finished up with school and Mm -hmm. try to get back to some normalcy, hopefully in the fall. Right. So one thing I learned when researching for this podcast coach is that your husband, Joe is an assistant coach for you. What is that dynamic? Like having your husband be on your coaching staff? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because a lot of people would think that it wouldn't um, wouldn't work, right? I mean, everyone's always like, "How do you guys do that? <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you go home when you had a tough loss? You yeah. know, what do you guys talk about?" So the great thing about us is that we are totally different types of coaches, and the way we look at the game um, completely, I almost want to say opposite of each other so he is very logical thinker um just very kind of common sense and direct and he actually coaches all of our offense so he is the mastermind behind our offense and what we do and i am more of the boisterous engaged I guess you could say like with our players from a personal perspective and I do all the defensive side of everything so yeah so we're totally separate in that regard so it works really well in the gym and then when we get home I mean we have three kids that are very busy and very active so we are super involved in everything that they're doing and then on top of that Joe won't talk to me after games (laughs) (laughs) He just says, we're not talking about it until uh-huh. tomorrow. And I'm like, that's fair. Yep. So we made that rule. So after games, we just do our thing, and then we get up the next day. And then once we've had some time to kind of process everything, then we'll prepare for the next practice or the next game. But yep. um, it's working, and it's been a lot of fun. And we feel very, very lucky um, because we're able to do this together and be able to still raise our family. And for sure. 
um, yeah, it's been a really great thing. Well, Coach, I appreciate all the time. I have five rapid-fire questions to end the podcast. Okay. Number one, what is your favorite drill as a coach? Oh, for sure, baseline closeouts, defensive drill. Okay. What, if any, do you have any pregame superstitions? I always have superstitions every year. They change from year to year, but it's typically something that I'm wearing. Okay. (laughs) If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change? Oh, gosh. Um, Three seconds. The three-second call in the paint. Like, just do away with it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Who is the best player you have ever coached against? Against? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. There's a lot of them. Um, I'm going to have to say probably Sam Barber from Stevens Point. Okay. And then the last question here is, what is the most the, the most unique thing you find about coaching Division three athletes? Um, that you get a chance to coach very, very special people that are internally motivated and have a love for basketball, that their passion for the game is amazing because they're doing it because they love it. They're mm-hmm. not doing it because they're getting a scholarship. They're doing it because they love it. Well, Coach, that – that's, I think, a lot of reasons why people love Division Three sports and why uh, I think people, once they start watching, they really start to love uh, the Division Three game as well. I really want to thank you and, and appreciate all the time uh, you've given here today. As usual, on the double-double, we give the last words to uh, the guests. you have anything you want to say to the great people of Whitewater, Wisconsin? Yeah, well, specifically to Whitewater, I mean, this has just been a tremendous um, community university i feel very blessed to have the opportunity to be the head coach at this institution and um so i am very grateful and thankful every day for this opportunity and hopefully i can continue to lead and guide and mentor in a positive way that makes everyone around us proud um to have said that they've been a part of our program and um so yeah i'm very grateful for that and just to the to the basketball community in general and Division Three women's basketball in general, you know, I can't say that I have not been more proud of where our game has come. And I'm just excited that I get a chance to talk about my experiences and, and situations with you here today and, and through a podcast or if it's an interview. I always feel very lucky that people are interested in our game and they respect our game and um and they enjoy it and Mm -hmm. so if we can bring some joy to people's lives through the game of basketball um i've done my job and i'm very thankful and blessed to to be able to have this job so um so thanks for doing this i think this is awesome and giving me a chance to kind of talk about my journey and hopefully i inspire someone else to take on this crazy profession of coaching and (laughs) and want to do it as well (laughs) for sure thanks coach thank you That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can leave us a rating, review, or subscribe. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. And you can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.